Good morning, everyone. You know, uh, last week or week before last, I mentioned how grateful I was just with the evidence of God raising up a younger generation of folks who are leading and ministering in the life of this church. And Larry gave the prayer before the offering. He's one of those answers to prayer. And we took a walk around our neighborhood recently with Larry and Emily and their sweet daughter, Madeline, and just talked about things. And I want you to understand that I'm not just thankful that people like him are standing up here. I'm thankful that um, <laughs> they consider it a privilege. They are prayerful. Uh, they really want to honor the Lord, and they are doing it with a worshipful attitude. The time that you spent just doing what you did for, what, 45 seconds, I know you spent lots of time this week preparing your heart to honor the Lord when you did those 45 seconds. That encourages me greatly. And that's what I see evident in many of the, the younger generation in our church, and I'm so thankful for that. So praise the Lord for his answer to prayer. Um, as you know, we've been working our way through Acts, and last week we uh, understood both the blessing and the challenge of expositional preaching. In case you're unfamiliar with that term, expositional preaching is where the, the content of a sermon is ultimately determined by the context of the passage. In other words, it's teaching what the Bible has to say and not just what I think you need to hear, right? And, and there's a real blessing in that. That's why we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we work our way from the beginning to the end as we work through a book. The blessing of this type of teaching is our, un, our, our ability to unpack the, the meaning of a passage from start to finish. And, and this is really important when you consider a historical book like Acts because the order of events matters. I mean, just think back to when you were in school and you did world history, right? Did they start in the middle and then go back to the beginning, and then go to the end, and then back to the middle again? No, it'd be totally confusing. The order of events matters, and it matters in Scripture too. So much so that as we follow the order of events, it gives the events meaning and understanding. You see, following the context is what ultimately leads us to the God-intending meaning of a passage. That's the blessing of expositional preaching. Now, the challenge is you can't skip the hard parts. <laughs> like Ananias and Sapphira, right? That's, that's a slightly disturbing passage to walk through. And I think it's hard because you, you're working to resolve that tension between the love of God and the justice of God. The, the forgiveness of, of God on one hand and the justice of God on the other hand. And to be honest, I think it's okay to struggle with that. And the reason I think it's okay to struggle with that tension is because I think it helps us better understand the cross. See, in Romans, Paul says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says that the wages of sin is death. And so that tells us that we stand guilty before a holy God. Our sin demands His righteous judgment. But we also know from Scripture that, that God deeply loves those He has created in His image. 
may remember when we walked through, uh, looked at Psalm 145, it tells us that the Lord is gracious, that He's rich in love, that He's slow to anger, that He's good to all, that He's compassionate to, to all that is created, and that includes us. So there you have that tension, that tension between God's love for the sinner and His requirement to judge their sin. And so how does he resolve the tension? Well, the answer is found at the cross. You see, if God simply overlooks our sin, he is not just. If a murderer stands before a judge and he says, ah, it doesn't matter, let him go, we would say that that is not a just judge. So for God to overlook our sin, he would not be just. But at the same time, for God to judge our sin without a path to redemption, we would never know God's love apart from that. So there's the tension. And how does God resolve the tension? And I believe he does at the cross. The Bible tells us that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Christ. He is just because he took our judgment and put it on Jesus Christ at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. The punishment that we deserved was put on him. And once that justice was satisfied, then and only then could our redemption be made possible. Our redemption literally came to life when Jesus rose from the grave. Because that's when he became the justifier by conquering the power of death so that we could have eternal life. Paul summarizes it when he says, We are justified as a gift of God's grace through redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. God is both just and justifier taking the the punishment that we so deserved so that we could experience the love that he so desires. Peter's been preaching that there's salvation in no one else. And what he's saying is there's no other way to resolve that tension between God's love and God's justice other than what you see at the cross. There is no salvation in any other name under heaven given unto men by which you can be saved. Now, if Ananias and Sapphira were believers, and I want you to think about this, I I believe they were, and one of the reasons I do is because if we look at that story in its context, we can see that the, the Spirit of God was at work in their heart. And God gave them both a chance to repent. They just chose to refuse. They tested God's goodness by following Satan's lie And it led to their death, which seems really harsh to us, doesn't it? But I can assure you, if they are believers in Jesus Christ, then it became an immediate blessing to them. Because at the moment that they left this earth, they stood before their Savior. Their sins were forgiven and their faith became sight. See, their death sent a message to the church, and it was an important message that spiritual integrity is a really big deal because the testimony of our lives is a message of hope 
And it's a message of hope that the world desperately needs to hear. And so our integrity is important to protect the integrity of that message. Which is why the apostles are so diligent to boldly proclaim that message, even in the face of strong opposition and direct persecution. And that's what we're going to look at again this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to you, we are grateful that in your goodness, you have shown your mercy. So that in a way only you could accomplish, you became both the just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ. Because the punishment that we deserve was placed on him so that he who knew no sin became our sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Father, as we hear your word this morning, would you impress upon our hearts the importance of what it means to be a child of God, experiencing the love that you so deeply desire for us to know and experience and walk in on a day-to-day basis. Help us be emboldened by that truth in a way that allows us to walk faithfully in obedience to glorify and honor your name. Guide us as we spend time in your word Open the truth into our lives so that we may be different when we leave this place. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Acts chapter 5, and we will begin in in verse 12. So Acts chapter 5, verse 12, picking up where we left off last. It says in verse 12, And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So despite the threats from the religious leaders, the the apostles are continuing to, to boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. It appears that they're returning to the same place day after day. The, the place is called Solomon's Portico. And what this tells us is that they're not hiding the message. They're not afraid of the persecution. They are going to a place where everybody will know they will be so that they can hear the message of the gospel that they are boldly proclaiming. And they are healing those who are sick in Jesus' name. Now, when it says in Jesus' name, it's important to understand why it makes that point. Because it's trying to help us understand that that these men do not have power in and of themselves. But it is the power of God at work in the people of God that is performing these miracles for the people to see. The being able to do it in Jesus' name is the declaration that it is upon Jesus' authority over sickness and disease that these people are being healed. They are proclaiming. His ability to take something that is broken 
and make something new. So within the context of every single miracle, there is a message. It is a message of salvation that is saying God is able to take your broken life and make something new, a new creation in Christ. It is a miracle with a message. Now, verse 12 says that they were all in one accord in Solomon's portico. I believe the all is referring to all the apostles. So one of the things that tells us is that the preaching is now expanded beyond just Peter and John. The, the other apostles are with them. And the reason I believe it's all the apostles is because later we're going to learn that all the apostles were thrown in jail. But in verse 13, it says something a little bit confusing. It says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. The question is, who are the rest? Who are the people who, who are afraid to associate with the apostles? I think one of the ways we can help answer that question is to, to look in that verse where it seems to indicate that the rest are the same people who hold the apostles in high esteem. Look at verse 13 again. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, I believe these same people held them in high esteem. So these are people who are keeping a safe distance from the apostles. They are intrigued by their message. They like what they hear, but they're afraid of getting too close to be personally involved. Because of that, I think these are unbelievers. People who are hearing the truth, but still unwilling to surrender their life. And maybe it's because they see what's happening to those who believe, like the apostles who are being persecuted and being thrown in jail. And so they are keeping a safe distance in order to protect themselves from that kind of persecution or that kind of loss of uh, position in society. They don't dare to associate with them, but they are interested in what they have to say, which is a stark contrast to those men and women who draw in close and are being added to their number. That's another way of saying these are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There is a harvest of faith because of the fruit of the gospel being communicated by the apostles in Jerusalem. While some keep a safe distance, there are others who have considered the cost. And here's what they've determined. They've determined that it makes no sense to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. And so they have drawn near to the Savior who gives them eternal life. And as a result, we see that the church continues to grow. And its influence apparently is spreading beyond Jerusalem because in verse 16 we see that there are people now coming in from the communities surrounding the city of Jerusalem. They're carrying in their sick. They're, they're bringing the lame in on cots. And at the end of verse 16, it tells us they're all being healed. The evidence of God's hand at work in Jerusalem through the apostles could not be more clear. And yet, if you are blinded by pride, you cannot see the truth even if you are staring at it in the face. So look at how it continues in verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. 
they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out said, Go your way, stand, speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought to the religious leaders. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite secure. The guards were standing at the doors, but when we had opened them up, no one was inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard of the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about how they would have come to, to happen. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. It's important to understand here that the religious leaders are not concerned about protecting God's truth. They are not concerned about protecting God's people. They are consumed by jealousy against the apostles. They oppose the apostles because of pride. You see, they're jealous because the apostles are being held in high esteem, and they're not. They're jealous because the apostles are performing signs of wonders, and none of which they can duplicate. They are jealous because the apostles are continuing to preach in Jesus' name, and they were directly ordered not to. So they arrest the apostles. And it says that they throw them in a public jail. Now, I think the reason that Luke makes that point is because this public jail is intended to humiliate the apostles. It's the religious leader's way of saying, look who's in control, right? Look who has the power. We can do what we want to. We're going to throw you in jail. It's a public jail so everybody can see that we're the ones who hold the power. But somewhere in the night, we learn that an angel of the Lord releases the apostles. Here's what's ironic about that. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. <laughs> like the resurrection, the presence of angels as a biblical truth is one that they have rejected. And yet God sends an angel, a truth they've rejected, to rescue the apostles. And with their divine deliverance is a divine commission. The angel instructs the apostles to boldly proclaim the message of life. It's a unique, it's a different way to, to communicate the message of the gospel, the, the message of life. And I think it's intended to be an encouragement given the circumstances to, to don't be threatened by this death when you have the words of life. Go and proclaim them. John says in his gospel that Jesus is life. That is his life is the light of men. The apostles are proclaiming a hope in Christ that did not exist in the religious system. 
it was a hope that didn't exist because many of the Jews lived under the idea that their justification was based on their ability to keep the law. It was a justification by works. And it's important to understand that their desire to keep the law as a form of justification is never what God intended it to be. In fact, God gave them to law, the law in order to reveal their need. And then they took the law and used it to gain their acceptance. They are trying to be justified by works. And with that, there is absolutely no assurance of salvation. Because when you are being justified by works, you never know if it's ever enough. But the apostles are are proclaiming a completely different message. Not a message of of justification by works based on what you do to earn your merit before God. They are giving a message of, of justification by faith. A justification that you do not accomplish your own salvation. You believe in Christ to do for you what you cannot accomplish on your own. It is a justification by faith and not by works. Well, while they were proclaiming this message of justification by faith, trusting in God to do something for you that you cannot do for yourselves, the religious leaders have no idea. They're going about their normal business, and so they gather together in that circle of intimidation, if you'll remember. The the council gathers, and they're in a semicircle. They kind of sit up above, and they bring the people put on trial below them in order to intimidate them. And so they're all formed, and they said, guards, go get the the prisoners guards go get the prisoners but they walk in and the prisoners aren't there so they come back to the religious leaders and explain that they're not there and while everybody's scratching their heads the next guy comes in and says i know where they are (laughs) they're out at where we last saw them at the temple and they're still teaching about jesus While everyone was standing around, we know that the chief priest, this is kind of like the chief of police, he and his strongest hooligans go out and they get the apostles. It says that there was no violence, mainly for them, because they didn't want the crowd to to turn on them. But notice that the apostles don't oppose it either. Why? Because they know that the guards don't hold the power that God ultimately does. That there is no barrier that can stand in the way of his sovereign control. That has been very evident to them. And so they go peacefully in return to the council. And so look at what happens next. Verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Notice he won't even say the name of Jesus, in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. Now, the religious leaders were upset for really two primary reasons. The first reason was the apostles had disobeyed a direct order not to teach in Jesus' name any longer. And by disobeying that order, they had disregarded the authority of the religious leaders. But Peter tries to explain to them, look, we mean no no disrespect, but but we are duty-bound to obey God more than we obey man. We are witnesses, and we must proclaim what we have seen and what we have heard as a witness. But the second reason that comes up may be the more pressing issue in this moment. The high priest condemned the apostles for making them responsible for Jesus' death. Now, we hear that and we think, well, you are. You called for the crucifixion of Jesus. But really what he's saying here to the apostles is, you're trying to get us killed. That's the problem. You're trying to put his blood on us among these people. You're trying to get us killed. And here's what Peter does. He turns and he says, no, we're not trying to get you killed. We're trying to get you saved. Peter repeats a sermon that he's given at least two times by now. That Jesus, the one you put to death, God has raised. Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead and is exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. He then identifies Jesus uniquely. He says, our prince and savior. These are two terms that as I have seen, I've not been combined like this before. I think what he's trying to say is that Jesus... Our prince, our ultimate authority, is the one who makes our redemption possible. He says, to grant repentance to all of Israel. And here's what I think Peter's saying when he says that statement. By all, Peter is saying, we need a Savior just as much as you do. Because we are part of Israel, too. By granting repentance to all of Israel, Peter is including himself along with the other apostles. He's not disregarding their authority. He's inviting them to believe. To trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But he is making it clear that to to disobey or to deny this invitation is ultimately to, to disobey or to reject the Spirit of God. And, and notice their reaction in verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. To be cut to the quick literally means to be sawn in two. What it's telling us is that their heart was deeply divided with conviction. But instead of listening to their heart because of their pride, They turn to violence. Instead of considering the truth, they eliminate the messenger. And they want to kill the apostles on the spot so that they can end this thing right now for good. But something very interesting happens in this moment. If you would, look at verse 34. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up, 
in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. He then said to them, the council, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos uh, rose up claiming to be somebody. A, a group of about 400 men followed and joined him. And then he was slain. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew out some people after him. He too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. And, And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even found fighting against God. This is fascinating. Gamaliel is a respected rabbi among this religious council. Apparently he has a lot of influence because he gives the command for the guards to take the apostles away, and they do what he says without question. And everybody respects him for speaking to them. He, he then offers some wisdom in a room that at that time is filled with hate. His argument is simple. If this is not from God, it will not last. If it is from God, you cannot stop it. Hear that again. If if this is not from God, it will not last. If it is from God, you cannot stop it. And then, like a good lawyer would, he gives two case examples to help prove his point. The first example involves a, name by, a man by the name of Theodos. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Theodos, but apparently they do, because he gives the example. They know who he's talking about. This is a guy who, who started a small rebellion. They, they know about 400 people followed him. But when that leader was then slain, all of those who followed him disappeared. They just went silent. The second example is a man by the name of Judas of Galilee. Now, this is a little more interesting because Galilee is the area where many of the disciples are from. So this is kind of one of their brothers, so to speak. We actually know a little bit about Judas of Galilee from the Jewish historian Josephus. What we learn from that history is that Judas of Galilee started a rebellion, as is indicated in this passage, as a result of the census. Now, as a Jewish person... He was revolting against a Roman census because that's how they determined taxes upon the people, which was always a burden on the Jewish people because they bore the brunt of that burden. So really, Judas of Galilee was doing what everybody else wanted to do, but he's the only one who had the guts to do it. And so he started this rebellion against this Roman census, but it's the Roman Empire. So he was quickly silenced, put to death, and nobody else said a word. Now keep in mind that the crucifixion of Jesus is just barely a few months away. It it hasn't been that long since Jesus, like Thaddeus, like Judas of Galilee, had been put to death. He's the one that started this movement. The disciples are just his followers. And it's as if Gamaliel is telling them, look, You're giving these guys way too much credit. Just give it time. And like those other followers, they too will disappear. And as they listened to his argument, they agreed with his advice. But they weren't going to let the apostles just walk out of there without 
having some kind of punishment for their disobedience. So it says that they flogged them. Look at what happened in verse 40. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we see here that the apostles somehow find joy in the midst of their suffering. But I want to be clear. The suffering was not in and of itself joyful. It was very painful. The flogging was no small punishment. In fact, people were known to have died from a flogging. Okay? What a flogging was is is they would take somebody and they would tie their hands together. They would lift their hands above their head so that they could not move or protect themselves. And they would take a whip. And that whip had long cords, and those cords usually had glass or metal or something embedded into the leather. And then they would do what I call the wrap and rake, where they would take that whip and they would wrap it around and then rake it. Once in the front, twice in the back. Once in the front, twice in the back. 39 times. And so... Painful suffering is not what brought the apostles joy. That, in fact, that's not what it says. Look again at verse 41. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Suffering shame is what gave them joy. They were being punished for their devotion to Jesus Christ. And it was their devotion to Jesus Christ that gave them joy. And so as we finish up this morning, I, I want us to just to take that very powerful truth and unpack it just a little bit more. Because being a Christian does not guarantee that you will not suffer. Okay? When you put your faith in Christ, God does not remove all the difficulty from your life from that point on. But, it does change the way you endure hard things. Because there are promises of God that now come into play that do not remove suffering, but they dramatically change how you endure it. Okay, And I want to give you three of those promises that I pray you never, ever forget. Okay, So listen closely. The first promise is this. God promise, promises that our suffering is never meaningless. Promise number one. God promises that our suffering is never meaningless. Okay? Number two. God promises that our suffering is never wasted. So our suffering is never meaningless. Our suffering is never wasted. And then promise number three. God promises that we are never alone in the midst of our suffering. Never meaningless, never wasted, never alone. Those are promises of God. L- let me give you an example of the first one. Turn to Romans chapter 5. So you're in Acts, just move one book over to Romans chapter 5. 
And I want you to look at verse beginning in verse 1. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Look again at verse 3. That word exult is not a common word we use. It means joyful confidence. The word exult means joyful confidence. It's saying that we have a joyful confidence in the midst of difficult situation. And he then goes on to kind of describe a, a chain of events that follow. That joyful confidence leads to, to perseverance. Another way to describe perseverance is a patient endurance. So our joyful confidence is what gives us courage to have a patient endurance. And that patient endurance is what reveals a proven character. In other words, it exposes something within us that was previously hidden. So I want you to think of it like mining a, a rare material like gold or silver. When you take that out of the earth, it's covered with impurities. And so you take it and you put it inside of a fire, and that fire burns off all the impurities. So all the beauty that is now hidden inside is exposed and seen. Well, you were created with incredible beauty inside. And the reason I know that's true is because you were created in the image of God. The most beautiful you could ever ask or imagine. So you were created with incredible beauty inside. And God has His power uses it in the midst of suffering to reveal that beauty, that person that he ultimately created you to be, that it can come to life in the midst of a hard time. Because when you turn to him and he works in your life, you find hope. And that hope says that suffering has a purpose, that it's never meaningless, that God can use hard things, even even difficult situations to bring about a good result. He can sanctify our life. He can refine our character in a way that reveals a beauty otherwise hidden inside. He can use hard things, bringing beauty from ashes. That's who God is. Linda shared with me recently how when Jan, her husband, passed away, she could not imagine how she would live without him. I mean, they had an incredible marriage, a beautiful demonstration of love and dedication. And Jan did so much for her because he loved her. And when he was gone, she would ask, how 
do I carry on? But we also had a conversation in recent weeks where she said that God has shown her some things about herself, some beauty inside she'd never known before. That there are ways that he has revealed to her that she is able to do some things that she never thought she could because he's enough. He has revealed to her that he is sufficient and that there are things that he has created in her that allows her to do things that she never thought she could. That through something very difficult, God has brought something very beautiful. I've seen it (laughs) with my own eyes. It's never meaningless. The other assurance that we have is that it's never wasted. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Familiar verse, and I don't want you to miss the powerful truth that's packed into one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what this is saying is that as a Christian, you can be certain that hard times that you endure are building up a bank account of heavenly rewards that are beyond what you could ask or imagine. I love the way John Piper says it. Listen, he says, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you receive because of your suffering. What he's saying is that nothing's wasted. Everything's accounted for. Whether that's cancer or criticism, slander or sickness, nothing is ever wasted. There is an eternal reward. From a loving Savior that knows no end. Suffering's never meaningless in the life of a Christian. God can use all things to bring about a good purpose. It is never wasted because it is all accounted for. And there is a heavenly reward that knows no end. And then lastly, you're never alone. Jesus is clear. I will never leave you, he says. And I will never forsake you. Even in the midst of your suffering, when you are united with Christ, He is right there with you. He doesn't abandon you to your suffering and and see how you do without Him. He actually enters into it with you. Let me give you a picture of what that looks like from a very familiar Old Testament story. We all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Three men during Babylonian captivity who refused to bow to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because of their devotion to Christ, their devotion to God. And they said, we cannot allow our devotion to God stand in the way by bowing to an idol other than him. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, I have the power to destroy you. I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace and we're going to all watch you burn. So that's what he did. He tied their hands. He tied their legs. He placed those three men into that fiery furnace. 
And then they all looked inside, and nothing was happening to them. They were walking around in the fire. But here's what was amazing. He looked in there, and he didn't see three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He saw four. Four. That's because God never abandons you in the midst of your suffering. He enters into it with you. Now just stop for a moment and think for yourself about how significant as a believer in Jesus Christ it is to know that as you enter into faith in Christ, He does not remove suffering, but He dramatically changes the way you endure it. Because there is no suffering, no difficulty, no hard time that you will ever face that is ever meaningless. It is never wasted. And you are never, ever alone. One of the things that's interesting as you think about this story is the wisdom of Gamaliel in the council that day. Because he told them. If this is not from God, it won't last. If it is from God, you can't stop it. Do not lose sight of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive and well today. And what does that tell you? It is true, and you cannot stop it. You are a living testimony of a living God who is still at work in the world, doing the very same thing he was doing during the time of the apostles. As you, through your life and through your words, proclaim the gospel of life in Christ, and you share the good news with those around you, and you are proving the wisdom of Gamaliel is true, because if God is in it, you cannot stop it. And so let me encourage you, just as we see at the end of our passage, it says that the apostles went on preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And what they're saying is they wouldn't stop telling people that he's our only hope, that there is salvation in no one else, that there's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. And the fact that you are here this morning and you believe that truth should compel you to continue to share that truth with those around you. Because if it's not from God, it wouldn't have lasted. <laughs> but because it is, it has. So speak boldly. And live faithfully. Knowing that even in the midst of suffering, it's never meaningless, never wasted, and you're never alone. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for the profound truth that is evident in this passage about who you are in the life of those who trust in you. I'm grateful that we see through the example of apostles that you were right there with them, that there was no barrier that could stand in the way, that they could face the fear of death and yet still proclaim the words of life because they knew that they had an eternal hope. That they could leave a situation of painful suffering and yet still rejoice to have been connected to devotion to Christ. And, and that they would show up the very next day and the days that follow continuing to proclaim life in Him. 
Lord, may we learn and, and live out of this very same truth in our own lives. Give us that assurance of hope even in the midst of hard times. You promise it's never meaningless, it's never wasted, we're never alone. And may we live with great, deep conviction of that truth and rejoice in our devotion to you. Amen. Before you go anywhere, please stay seated. I want to call up Taylor and Megan Fuller and Larry and Emily Jane. Did they maybe went and got, did she get Madeline? Is she getting Madeline? Good. Come on up, Larry. We'll talk slowly. So uh, Taylor and Megan Fuller uh, have gone through the, the membership process. Again, another example of why I'm so grateful to see what is happening in this church through a younger generation of men and women. Had a chance to sit down with Taylor and Megan, uh, had dinner at our house and heard their story of faith. They're from Amarillo, um, were involved in a church there, were told by, uh, who told you guys? Monica, Monica Norris, her, uh, Taylor, I think, was at a church that Monica's parents were involved in. And they said, you ought to look at Melanie Park while you're there. Well, the first day they were here, uh, uh, the concerts invited them to be a part of their small group that was just being started. And they said that that little small group has become a really big blessing in their life as they've gotten to know people and just felt real convinced that this was a body of believers that they wanted to be plugged into. And I really appreciate their heart that by being a part of this church, they're saying we want to be involved in the life and ministry of this body. So grateful for them. And, you know, baby's always still the show. <laughs> Nobody's listening to me. They're all looking over here. Thank you, Lance, for making eye contact with me. <laughs> this is sweet Madel Madeline. Ma did I say that right? Yeah. Madeline. Um, and Larry and Emily. Uh, Larry is a resident at the Health Sciences Center, and uh, you've seen Emily up involved with the music team recently they haven't been at melanie park very long in fact megan and taylor just got married in january and just started coming a few months ago and so both of these couples very quickly have entered into the life of this church and said we want to be a part of the ministry of this body and i'm deeply encouraged by them and their willingness to make that commitment so let me pray for them and i encourage you to come up here and introduce yourself and get to know them a little bit this morning so let me pray God, I'm so deeply grateful for the example of this, these young men and young women who have looked at what happens in the life of a church and have understand the value and the importance of being connected deeply into the ministry of that body of believers and have made a commitment to be a part of Melanie Park Church. We are better because of that. They bring gifts and abilities that enrich the life and ministry of who we are. So, Father, thank you for them. Bless them. Bless their marriages. Bless their family. And may they walk faithfully seeing your hand at work in their lives every day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great morning.